Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number one, an introduction to Deuteronomy. Well, today we begin a study of the final and fifth book of the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy. And we've come a long way, haven't we? And to this point in Torah, we've seen the creation of the world and of mankind, the destruction of the world and all but eight humans by a great flood, and then the earth's very rapid repopulation. But then we saw a creation of a people set apart for God because the world, after the flood, again quickly became wicked and it turned away from him. And this automatically means that the world became divided and separated into two distinct groups, God's people and everybody else. Okay, God's people are called Hebrews. Everybody else were called Gentiles. Now the Hebrews were not chosen for any special kind of merit on their part, nor were they chosen because they were a mighty people. They weren't. The exact reason they were chosen isn't precisely stated in the Bible. In later times, God says that he chose Israel because of his love of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though that's a pretty broad and unspecific cause of his selection. But as of the time of Deuteronomy, the Lord has issued two major covenants, both to Israel, of course. The first covenant was to Abraham that out of him would come the Hebrew people, later called Israel, and that they would receive a special allotment of land for their own. And the second covenant on Mount Sinai, the law, was issued through Moses to a nation of people called Israel. And this second covenant set down exactly how Israel was to live the redeemed life that God intended for them. So it consisted of civil, religious, and and moral ordinances and rules. Now these laws were to be obeyed explicitly and without question. Yet these laws were also an ideal that reflected the purity and pattern of heaven itself. And Israel was never able to completely follow these laws and principles and patterns to any real reasonable degree. Now Israel, as Deuteronomy begins, is to this point a people without a country. Okay? They were formed and grew into a nation in the belly of the beast, Egypt. And God has now rescued them from that beast, redeemed them, and given them his laws and commands so that they can know God's character and what pleases and displeases him. And by obeying these laws and observing these special holy occasions, harmony with God could be achieved. Disobedience and disregard for them brought down God's wrath upon their heads. Yehovah also established an elite set-apart group of people from among his overall set-apart people. This group was the tribe of Levi, 
who were to be his priests and servants and guardians of the Lord's holiness on earth. At this moment, the time of Deuteronomy, Israel, all three million of them, are standing on the eastern edge of the Jordan River in Moab. Not too far from Jericho. And Moses is about to address them in a stirring speech. It is his address to the people of Israel that forms the basis for Deuteronomy. Now I congratulate you all for hanging in there as we've spent more than three years just getting to this point. Okay. The bad news is we're going to finish our fourth year together before we complete Deuteronomy and then graduate from Torah into the next several books of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. The good news is that unlike what many of you might have heard or maybe assumed, Deuteronomy is not a repeat of the first four books of Torah, nor is it a summary. So what can we expect from Deuteronomy? Well, first let's take a look at the name, Deuteronomy itself. Deuto comes from the Greek word Deuteronomion Tuto. Okay, and that means the second law. Okay, now as I've stated on numerous occasions, translating the original Hebrew into another language, Greek, and then from Greek into Latin, and then from Latin into English is fraught with problems, as you can imagine, and I've pointed up not just a few of those problems uh, during our time together. We're not only dealing with differing languages, but also differing cultures. So what a word indicated in one language and color, uh, culture didn't always have a direct counterpart to another language and culture. This has led to the hundreds of Bible versions in existence today, each of which has its advantages and disadvantages for the serious Bible student. The title of this fifth book of the Bible is a victim of these language and cultural variations. See, Hebrews didn't name the books of the Torah. Rather, they just spoke of them, they referred to them, by using the first few words that formed each book. The first few words of our new undertaking are, these are the words. So the Hebrews would simply refer to this book as Elaha Devarim, which means, these are the words in Hebrew. The current popular name in Hebrew is Sefer Devarim. All right, the book of these are the words. <laughs> all right, and even that's usually shortened up to simply Devarim. Okay, so the term Deuteronomy actually comes from an error in understanding the meaning of chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, verse 18, that says, at least in English, this is a copy of the teaching of Moses. The Greek Deuteronomion doesn't mean copy. It means second. As in another. So while the Hebrew intends copy, the Greeks intend second. But the purpose of this book is not as a second set of laws, 
a second Torah. It is but a copy of what Moses taught earlier, slightly adjusted for the difference in circumstance between wandering in the wilderness for all those years as Bedouins versus about to be living a settled life in Canaan. All that said, for the sake of communication in our native language of English, I shall say the word Deuteronomy because it's the one we're all familiar with. Now, the oldest extant text of Deuteronomy goes back to the 9th century and is called the Masoretic Texts, which includes the entire Hebrew Bible. However, the discovery and translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls that date to the, to before the time of Christ, actually, contains many large fragments of Deuteronomy, and examination has proven them to be nearly identical. Okay, with the Masoretic text, except for some minor spelling or copyist errors or grammar differences. So what we have available to us today in our Bibles is accurate, at least to 100 to 200 BC. Now many modern scholars have an affinity for trying to disprove the authenticity of the five books of Moses, and most of the Bible for that matter. And the primary method they use for that today is called literary criticism. And another is called textual criticism. The idea in general is to examine the ancient texts to determine if what was written down makes sense for that era that it claims to have been written. Okay, And then they look for signs that perhaps more than one style of writing might have been incorporated which indicates to them that multiple writers were involved. And even if what was said and written down was appropriate and matched with what was archaeologically known about the era. Therefore, Deuteronomy is now said to have been written in the 8th century BC, not in the 13th or 14th, which is probably when Moses was leading them out of Egypt. Let me assure you, though, that there's no need to buy into this latest so-called scientific finding that more closely approximates a fad. Okay, First, it's anything but scientific. There, there's no tests. There's no standards by which to measure whether these literary critics are right or they're wrong. Okay, See, this is all about speculation that revolves around their own subjective worldview. Okay. This is not unlike the recent spate of Hollywood movies about caveman and how dinosaurs must have lived and operated in the primitive earthly environment. The same dinosaurs, uh, the same scholars rather, who refuse to acknowledge the accuracy of the Hebrew documents we call the Bible, because for them, they say, well, there's just not sufficient written documents of other societies from that era to verify. The content. Well, these are the same ones who go find an animal or a human skeleton, some faded cave paintings, some spearheads, gather some artifacts, and then make a full-length feature film showing hairy men grunting at one another, fighting over equally hairy women, (laughs) all the while munching away on a raw mammoth rib. And of course... There must, 
always be the enormous and now extinct reptiles running in packs. And they're all interacting with each other. You know, even intelligently communicating, we're told. Alright? And as far as I know, you can clue me in if you'd like, none of these creatures, hairy human or gigantic lizard skin reptile, have left us any written documents. Alright, from these caveman days. Okay, but these scientists don't seem to have any problem insisting that their vision of the ancient past with but the scantest of real evidence is the correct one. Go figure. Well, while it is very likely that redactions to all the books of the Torah have occurred to some degree over the centuries, the reality is, the verifiable reality is, that every fragment of Torah ever found from any era all closely match one another. Okay. The evidence is that Deuteronomy was partially penned by Moses or more likely his scribe as well as some other contributors because part of Deuteronomy looks back on a time after Moses died. Okay. Could some redaction of this book have taken place in the 8th century, the time at which some scholars say Deuteronomy was actually first created? Certainly. That's likely. However, to say that the main body of this book was written five centuries after the Exodus is nothing but the most blatant form of modern, secular, or liberal Judeo-Christian intellectualism that seeks to harmonize the Bible with whatever is currently politically correct and popular among their academic colleagues. In fact, in earliest Christianity, there was no concept of anything but a Torah written by Moses. Even in the far older religion of Judaism, there was no serious thought or dissent against the common knowledge that the Torah had been written by Moses. We find even the likes of Philo and Josephus, for instance, insisting on a Moses-authored Torah. In the end, it wasn't until the late 17th and 18th centuries of our era in Europe, during the period of the Enlightenment, when secular humanism was invented, Right? And religion was seen by these anti-Semitic Enlightenment philosophers, philosophers to be an unintelligent activity. Okay? That the very first scholarly objections to the authorship of the Torah or whether it was even authentic began to arise. So this is only about a 250-year-old issue. You know, It's hard for me to put the arrogance and irrationality of this line of thinking into a severe enough mold. I mean, academics from 3,000 years after the fact want to argue with the writings of the historians who were present. Or at least 2,000 years a lot closer to it than us. Well, I just reject that whole thought right outright. Okay. Deuteronomy is going to be a surprising book to most of you, I think. It's going to surprise you primarily in the concepts. 
it so beautifully and articulately presents about God the Father, about the land of Canaan, about the law, and other important subjects. In fact, I would submit to you that Deuteronomy is the Moses version of Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount. Okay, and here's why. Moses begins this book by recounting how it is that Israel got to where they are at this moment in history. And in the so doing, he expounds on at least 50% of all the laws that had been given at Mount Sinai. In other words, he's going to go through almost all of the law in Deuteronomy, point by point, and tell Israel what it is that they are to conclude that is God's purpose for this law. We're going to find that Moses takes the law from its purely physical, mechanical level and raises it to a higher spiritual level of godly principles that governs all things, anywhere, during any era. He's going to explain why certain rituals were laid down the way they were, what their spiritual purpose is, the God-ordained principles behind them, and therefore why they're important, and why they're to be obeyed as they're ordained. Therefore, we'll have Moses saying that this is the law that was enacted back at Mount Sinai 40 years earlier, and that this is the way that the first generation of the Exodus has practiced it up to now. However, I'm going to tell you, says Moses, what it all means. And as we prepare to enter the promised land, this is how we should understand it and how we should execute God's instructions once we get there. And of course, in the New Testament counterpart of Moses' speech, we have Yeshua in the book of Matthew doing basically the same thing. Okay. Moses took the law from a primarily physical behavioral plane to a more spiritual plane in Deuteronomy. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the spiritual element Moses gave to the law in Deuteronomy, much of it which had been lost by his time, and moves it to a yet higher and purer spiritual level. Jesus says, and I paraphrase this, here is historically how your ancestors, Israel, thought of this command of God. And this is how the traditions of men have affected it. But I'm here to tell you what it means from here forth and, by the way, how it works in heaven. We have the first mediator of God, Moses, expounding on the ideal of the law in Deuteronomy. And we have the second and best mediator of God, Yeshua, expounding on the ideal of the law in the book of Matthew. The reason and conditions for the first expounding of the law in the Bible by Moses was his coming death. 
and the subsequent entry of God's people into the promised land of Canaan, God's earthly kingdom. The reason and conditions for the second expounding of the law in the Bible by Yeshua was his coming death and subsequent entry of God's people into God's kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. Now, I hope this makes sense to you for a number of reasons. First, if you can understand the parallel that I just drew for you, then you have a good basic context for understanding Deuteronomy. Okay. Second, this is but further dramatic proof of God's established patterns that begin in Genesis and they're never ending. Okay. They repeat over and over again. But as we move through the Bible, we see these patterns that began as mere dust and clay, physical, progressively move into a higher and yet higher spiritual plane until at the end of the Bible, all the laws and patterns established by Yehovah are at their absolute ultimate spiritual perfection and essence that Yehovah has planned and ordained for his creation because essentially there will come a time there will come a time when the lines between heaven and the earth start to blur and eventually it all moves into one okay third it helps to establish that the newness of the so-called New Covenant or New Testament isn't about a new set of principles or additional principles or some principles, laws, abolished and replaced by different ones. Rather, the newness is that the Old Testament Messiah has finally come. That's what's new. And he is Yeshua of Nazareth. And all that was promised has come with him. Or in some cases, the process has been greatly advanced towards the ultimate world to come. In other words, the constant drumbeat that we have rightly heard in the church about love and grace and peace and mercy and redemption but is it being a new revelation that's at the core of the New Testament? That's not true. That's not true. It was introduced in the Torah and much of it you're going to read about right here in Deuteronomy. Now let me comment about another aspect of this Sermon on the Mount parallel with Moses' address in Moab to the people of Israel. Actually, it was a series of three addresses from Moses in Deuteronomy. This was more a sermon than a re-rendering of the code of laws given as an oracle from God on Mount Sinai. Okay, That is why the Sermon on the Mount is rightfully called a sermon and not an oracle. Okay, It was Jesus preaching and teaching on the law not Jesus creating a second or a new law. It was a 
it was the same on the mountains of Moab with Moses as the orator. He was preaching about the law, not making new laws and changing old ones. So what we're going to study in Deuteronomy will help to set the context, not just for the books that immediately follow it, like Joshua and Judges, but it's going to set the context for the New Testament as well. Now perhaps one of the most difficult things for a Christian who has come to understand the era of restoration that we've entered and the reality that Israel is in process of having the torch of the gospel handed back to them by Gentiles who took the lead of evangelizing for about 1900 years is how to approach that section of the Bible that has been relegated to the trash can for so long, the Old Testament. You know, we who speak fondly of the, of the Hebrew roots of our faith have struggled right along with the rest of our brothers and sisters in Christ, okay, who formed the larger and more mainstream portion of the church about just how to deal with this very ancient code of laws we find in the Torah. How does a modern Christian keep Torah? Are we to avoid wearing clothes of mixed cloth? Are we to reestablish society where males decide everything? Are we only to eat food grown under the biblical kosher ordinances? Should we reestablish cities of refuge for those who kill accidentally? Are we to celebrate the biblical festivals and observe the Jewish Sabbath? Men, are we to adopt rabbinical Jewish traditions like wearing kippahs, sporting full beards, reading from the Jewish prayer books? Should we insist that we sit apart from our wives during congregational services? Women, no applause please. Women, should you see yourselves as unclean during your period and remove yourself from your husband during that time and immerse in a mikvah upon the end of that cycle? You see, the thing is that Moses in Deuteronomy draws attention to the fact that the issue he is addressing in Moab is not whether these laws and principles still exist, but rather how to apply them and reapply them in evolving societal conditions and in various locations, something that's going to be a part of the human condition right until Jesus comes. Yeshua did essentially the same thing. But... He was concerned, and his sermon was something that Moses didn't have to contend with. Moses didn't have to tell people that the law would continue. Because he was addressing the people of the law. And any thought that the law would be terminated was ludicrous. But 1,300 years later, on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Yeshua was speaking to a crowd of Jews and some Gentiles. 
And he needed to make it crystal clear that nothing he said should be construed as abolishing even the slightest sliver of the law. Nor was he changing any of the pronouncements of the prophets. Indeed, not until heaven and earth passed away, he said, could such a thing even be contemplated. And of course, we find that discourse in Matthew 5. Therefore, my brethren, pay pay very close attention to Deuteronomy. Because we're going to see how a society that evolved after four decades, and thus the practical need for change in the details of observing the law to account for their new condition, came about. We're in the same boat today. Deuteronomy, like all other books of the Bible, wasn't written in a vacuum. It's not a standalone book. Deuteronomy, like the New Testament, will be misunderstood and misapplied if one does not read and understand what came before it as a foundation. Deuteronomy assumes, Moses assumes, that many of the things that are going to be discussed have been known and assimilated into the Hebrews' everyday life for quite some time. So Moses won't fully explain his terms because most of them were common knowledge. He won't fully even repeat a law word by word of a law from Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers that when he wants to preach about it. Instead, he'll often just kind of refer to a certain law or command in an abbreviated form because everybody understood what he was talking about. Moses will draw on incidents like the golden calf and the Balaam and Balach affair. And he's even going to just speak and say, do you remember what happened to Miriam? See, what happened to Miriam was so infamous and ingrained in the people, he didn't explain and re-explain and remind them what happened. All he had to say was, do you remember what happened to Miriam? Deuteronomy had an enormous effect on the development of Jewish tradition that would come far into the future of Deuteronomy. But even before that, the prophets who brought God's oracles to Israel on his behalf would use the verbiage and imagery that Moses used in this matchless book. Almost 200 of the original 613 Torah commands come in Deuteronomy. Okay. The method that Moses expounded on the law is closer to how the rabbis, at least at first, commented on the law. And so rabbinical halakha, rabbinical legal rulings, have a form and a protocol much more similar to Deuteronomy than in the earlier four books of Torah. Deuteronomy forms a very important part of ancient and modern-day Jewish liturgy. For instance, the Shema, the Hear, O Israel, of Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, through holds a very premium spot uh, in Jewish synagogue services. Okay. Other phrases taken right out of Deuteronomy 
are all interspersed throughout standard Jewish prayers, such as the Amidah and the Aleinu. Okay. Now, in order to best prepare you for this tremendous book, I'd like to lay some groundwork on the main premises that will be discussed so that you can be looking for them. J.H. Tige, a noted Hebrew scholar, has done a masterful job of assessing the primary themes that are going to form Deuteronomy. And since it would be hard for me to improve upon it, I'm just going to lay it out like he sees it. And at the top of the list is that the highest and most fundamental principle that undergirds all of Deuteronomy is monotheism. Now, while to we modern Christians and Jews, that doesn't seem to be like such an earth-shattering revelation, the principle of there being but one God. But that was almost incomprehensible to the mind of the Hebrews and Gentiles of that era. Okay. All throughout our years of studying together, I've, I've tried to point out the inescapable reality that when the Old Testament says things like gods, plural, and God of gods and Lord of lords, this was simply reflecting what every human culture of that time believed. That there were many gods and each nation had their own gods who presided over some particular territory, serving some particular function. Okay. Further, that while Israel believed in one God, it wasn't that there was a sum total of one God in existence. It's that in their peculiar case, their God only permitted them to have one. That he tolerated no competition. As a result, to the Hebrews' mind and to everybody who surrounded the Hebrews, Israel was God poor. And having only one God was downright embarrassing. And I've also tried to point out that through the first four-fifths of the Torah, we really don't find Yehovah, or Moses, or anybody else for that matter, pushing very hard on the idea right, that it's not that Israel is allowed only one God, it's that there's only one God in existence, and he's the God of everyone and everything. Well... It, that matter is addressed, finally, here in Deuteronomy. And Moses makes it clear that there is but one God, period. And it is a concept that is not particularly well received by the Israelites. They don't like it too much. And they don't take it very seriously. All right. As we see the people of Israel move from apostasy to apostasy over time, worshiping God after God and suffering dearly for it. The next major theme we're going to find in Deuteronomy is loyalty to Yehovah. Loyalty goes hand in hand with the monotheistic stream of thought. The logic is that if there's only one God and this God has decided to bless Israel above all other people, then the obvious response is absolute loyalty to him. 
In fact, Israel is not only not to reverting, rather not to revert to, to worship other gods or worshiping things like stars and the moon and the sun. Right? They're to destroy the temples and altars and high places of all these non-gods throughout the land of Canaan. Okay? Then we find that Moses discusses the entire concept of God. You know, a man who'd been a Christian for at least 50 years told me several months ago, and I, by the way, heard this, received many emails with a very similar comment, that until he studied Torah with us, he didn't realize that until then, he really didn't know who God was. And I agree with him totally. Okay. It is in the Torah, primarily Deuteronomy, that we get a very majestic and succinct picture of God's attributes, such that we can understand who he is in more depth than we can from only studying the New Testament documents. For instance, we're going to see in Deuteronomy God's nearness being further refined. God lives in heaven, but his presence, but it's, it's his presence that dwells in Israel. It wasn't God who was in the fire on the summit of Mount Sinai. It was his kavod, his glory. The Lord hasn't moved from heaven to a tent sanctuary, but is Shekinah, as Shekinah, as we say, is there hovering above the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, as I spoke of earlier, Moses takes the typical physical nature of the world of false gods who are present, completely or partially, on earth, usually in the forms of animals, or a pharaoh, or a king, or a river, or a cow, and makes it obsolete. Instead, Moses invokes the spirituality and formlessness of Yehovah as his true essence. Yet, Yehovah is a God with something akin to emotions. He is the God who loves, who gets angry, even gets jealous. He is not some distant being that sets the world into motion, gives us all a bunch of rules for living, and then takes a long vacation all right, with a do not disturb sign hanging on his door. This is a God. We have a God that craves intimacy with his people who love him. Next comes the theme of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. And here in Deuteronomy, that covenant relationship is affirmed. Okay. The first two covenants are reviewed and discussed. And in chapter 26, Moses emphasizes that even though the covenant relationship has as its foundation both legal and religious elements, that the relationship between God and Israel goes well beyond emotional and spiritual or spiritualized ties. Rather, Israel has specific 
definable obligations to meet. Meeting these obligations reflects both a proper attitude and Israel's intent to be obedient to the way the Lord has ordained many of these obligations to be formed. And this is part and parcel of that covenant relationship. Now there's a lot the modern church can learn from this. Okay, This covenant theme goes to some length to make it clear that physical action must accompany the spiritual faith of Israel. That to try and separate those two is folly. In other words, works. I know you're running for the door now. Works are an indispensable part of a believer's walk with God. Today, works is practically a four-letter word within the body of believers. Everything has been spiritualized to the point that what we do is completely secondary to what we feel. And that once we've accepted Yeshua as our Savior, we have no further obligations to the Father. Everything becomes optional. The New Testament book of James addressed that issue head on. James 2.26 says this, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. But this was not a new idea. Works coupled with faith was standard within Judaism because the concept is found in the Torah and we're going to find it expounded upon in Deuteronomy. Now it's going to take some of you by surprise that another major theme of Deuteronomy is love. The love that is discussed is primarily about God's love towards Israel and to a lesser degree to all of mankind. This bond of love is also to be reflected in God's people. Not only towards God, but towards one another, even to foreigners. Who Israel is in Yehovah's eyes is also central to Deuteronomy. Israel is a nation whose God and king is Yehovah. Israel is as a son to God, for he created them. He redeemed them. He guided them through the wilderness. He fights for them. He protects them. He has chosen Israel from among all the nations on earth for a very special, one-of-a-kind relationship with him. Now, other themes that will be discussed at some length in Deuteronomy are the land that is now Israel. Okay. The law and the need to stay safely within the boundaries of behavior and, 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 and thought that the Lord has ordained for Israel is also a big subject in Deuteronomy. One of the most interesting themes we're going to uncover in this book is the process of centralizing the place of sacrificial worship. That is, once Israel is in possession of the promised land, there's going to be one common place where all are to bring their sacrifices. 
and where the only authorized place of atonement resides. And it is so central to both Judaism and Christianity today, the theme of humanitarianism is focused upon in Deuteronomy. Orphans, widows, the poor, the sick, slaves, foreigners living among Israel, even animals, captured soldiers. These things are all given attention as Israel is exhorted to be humane in all their dealings with God's creatures. So despite a rather faulty rhetoric that unfortunately has been a mainstay of church doctrine for centuries, that the Old Testament is where we get an angry God, a vengeful God, a legalistic and bloodthirsty God, but in the New we see the peaceful God, the merciful and self-sacrificing God, the God of grace and shalom, this notion is completely destroyed, not only when one studies the first four books of Torah, but particularly as we study Deuteronomy. And we're going to start that in earnest next week.